So before diving into what right worship looks like, um, I want us to ask and answer the question of what worship on, on its own means. The Oxford Dictionary describes it as the feeling or expression of reverence and adoration for a deity. A similar definition says that great admiration or devotion shown towards a person or principle. So deity or person and principle. What would some examples of this be? For instance, we all know the expression secret admirer, don't we? They may be secret, but their feelings are expressed nonetheless. When we, for instance, love somebody, we're more inclined to do things for them that they like, sometimes without them even asking us to do that. When we believe something to be true and valuable, for instance, social justice or human rights, we can devote our whole lives to, for, for an ideology or a principle, a vision, to see a better world. So worship entails admiring something or someone more than anything else and doing something to express that emotion. But what does right worship look like? Starting from our passage, we're going to look at three things. Firstly, right worship needs to be addressed to the right person. I'm going to take a second here. If any PFers or YFers tells me the name of, oh no, it's already written, never mind. <laughs> right, see this is me being accidentally funny. Um, I was going to give you 25 tuck, but I've got another one that we can look at later. Uh, so, right worship is addressed to the right person. Now, before we look at the passage itself, I just want to share a little story from my own life that happened only um, a few weeks ago. I was out uh, with some people, um, and I met a new person for the first time in my life. Uh, we'll call him James. Um, we were talking about all sorts of things, small talk, holidays, work, etc. And then all of a sudden I just felt prompted to just ask what seemed to be quite a random question. And it seemed to have triggered something in him because he didn't quickly reply. It was a very basic question. Are you an only child? Um, and then that train of thought just took us places I didn't anticipate us ending up in. And he was so intrigued and captivated that um, he did tell me that um, he feels like he's a bit of an open book. And this is a bit surreal to him. It's never quite happened like that for, for somebody to just look at him and start telling him stuff, insight about his life. So like a good skeptic, like a, like a self-respected skeptic that he is, he put me to the test and he picked a question that could only have one right answer, and he would be the only person to know it. And he threw that very personal question at me and said, let's see now. And initially, I was a bit taken aback. I was like, what's the point of this interaction? I'm not supposed to be putting on a show. But I did get a, an answer, and I had a thought in my mind. So I played along, and I gave him an answer and his face dropped. It seems I got it right. And then he called me a psychic. 
That was his explanation. Um, I told him, it, I'm not a psychic. He was a bit disappointed. <laughs> I was a bit disappointed because he didn't have, we didn't share a moment because I proceeded to tell him that, look, I know it's a bit weird that I've just shared a lot of things about your, you as a person right now, and there's things that I normally wouldn't have known had you not told me them. But I believe that God kind of gave me a bit of insight right now so that you would know that you are known. I thought that was quite catchy. But he said, yeah, fair enough. And then we didn't talk about it anymore. Now, in our story, in the passage, um, that Zoe read for us, we see something far more incredible. I'm no soul. I didn't heal anybody. Um, but there are a couple of similarities. And just hold that in the back of your mind. So firstly, right worship needs to be addressed to the right person. Now, given the fact that we're all gathered here in a Christian church, you would think that this point is unnecessary, right? Aren't we all here thinking of the same person anyway? What could I possibly mean by asking if we're worshipping the right God? Now, I don't mean to insult anybody's intelligence or honesty, but rather to make the case that it's quite easy to get it wrong. We read the story and find ourselves laughing, some of us, when we get to the part about sacrifices being brought to Paul and Barnabas. Surely, that's a rather obvious mistake on their part, one that we can laugh at because we wouldn't be making it ourselves, right? It's easy to imagine the people there as simpletons, as pagans, people with like bar barbaric lifestyles who can't really tell right from wrong. But that's because our world today looks very different to what it was back then. So that being said, in Lystra, the village mentioned in verse 8, Lystra was by no means a silly place lacking in principles or structure. Lystra was home mainly to Roman soldiers and Greeks. Now, both the Romans and the Greeks worshipped several gods, each with their own powers, and had incredible myths around them. So many of the stories that we read now and we love find their origins in Greek mythology. So much of our vocabulary nowadays comes from Latin. Mathematics, astronomy, psychology, so many of those things that we study in depth at the moment have been founded in that time, in those days. So far from being simple and boring, places like Lystra were more like intellectual hubs, more than anything. So what was it then that made such intelligent people think that Paul and Barnabas were worthy of sacrifices? Quite simply put, a miracle. Enabled by God, Paul heals somebody. In spite of the misdirected zeal, the crowd identified something accurately. Worship is reserved for the gods. After seeing the miracle, the direct implication was that 
the gods have come down in human form. Paul heals the man that was in the crowd, and that was their reaction. The gods must have come down in human form. So mind the nuance here. It wasn't humans with miraculous powers, psychics, but rather gods come down in human form to do something. In my story, James made a joke, right, about my being psychic. To him, being a human with somewhat out-of-the-ordinary abilities made more sense to him than me being enabled by God to do something. He would have found it easier to accept a psychic than God. It seems that the current narrative in our world is quite different to the one in our passage. We here and now struggle to accept God. Praising people, charities, principles, however, comes a lot easier. So what do Paul and Barnabas have to say to the crowd in response? Friends, why? Why are you doing this? We too are only human. We've been looking at Acts for a while now. And one of the most memorable stories is Paul's conversion. Most of us would know the, the journey to Damascus, would remember the moment where um, Saul was blinded and then healed. But I wonder how many of us remember Acts 7, which I want to bring our attention to. If you recall, Stephen, one of the early disciples, got stoned in Acts 7. And this is the last bit in the passage that says, at this, they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they rushed at him, dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. Saul had authorized Stephen's stoning he was the one who had the power to make those calls. He, like most Pharisees and high priests in the Synod, thought this was the right thing to do, that it was justified. Now, after this, we have no record of Saul saying, no, 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 no. He didn't tell off the people for laying down their coats in front of him. It seemed he welcomed the praise. So, how different is that response to the one that we see in our passage tonight? The one who had once had the power to take somebody's life now was tearing his clothes and pleading with the crowd saying, I too am only human. What would it take to, to happen to, to cause such change in one person? What made Saul turn into Paul? Now, from his words, we learned that he turned to the living God. So going back to our first point, he started worshipping the right person. Our passage today doesn't tell us exactly what is worthless. But from Paul's words, we can see that he, what he believes to be worthy. The living God. Turn from these worthless things to the living God. One of my favorite authors, C.S. Lewis, once said that 
all that is not eternal is eternally out of date. I'm just going to say that one more time because I like it. All that is not eternal is eternally out of date. I'm just going to throw a couple of questions here. Is work eternal? Is self-praise eternal? Our principles, technologies, our families, are they everlasting? Now, mind you, I'm not saying that they are not valuable, not at all, by any means. But I am saying that they should not be the object of our adoration, of our worship. So what would convince Paul to, to turn to God and consider everything else worthless? This brings me to my second point, which is right worship is committed, not only convenient. Verse 17 says that God has not left himself without testimony. This is what um, Paul was saying in the defense, in their defense. Um, we too are only human. God did something amazing. He hasn't left us without testimony. And then he carries on giving some examples. So here, Paul and Barnabas, who were mistaken for Zeus and Hermes, say that God has given them rain, crops in their seasons, food and joy in their hearts. These are not random things they mention. Zeus was seen as the god of the sky and lightning. Hermes as the one responsible for the earth and the, the boundaries between earth and the underworld. What they're basically saying is, you want to praise us for something that we are not responsible for. It's not Zeus that gives you rain. It's the Christian God. It's not Hermes that brings things to fruition, but God that makes them grow. Having said all of that, how many of us would be impressed by that, really? Brits like talking about the weather. But how many of us are actually thanking God for it? Particularly today. <laughs> One key word, though, here in this sentence, he has not left himself without testimony, really caught my eye. And it's the word testimony. Little bit of a fun fact, I do like words. I'm a bit of a geek when it comes to stuff like that. I promise you it's worth it. It's worth it. The Greek word for testimony... <laughs> is martyria. Martyria is the, where we get the word martyrdom from, or martyr. Testimony, martyr. What's the connection? A martyr is not only somebody who witnesses something and, and testifies, but also somebody who suffers or maybe even dies for a cause. Stephen, at the decree of Saul, died a martyr. But here it says that God has not left himself without testimony. Can you think of the greatest martyr out there? Can you think of the one who asked for the cup to be taken away and yet went on to fulfill his goal?
God come down in human form, truly like they said, gave himself as testimony for us on a cross. In our story, Paul got stoned by the people who initially wanted to bring sacrifices to them. Jesus, rejected by the people he came to save, died a horrific death to save us. Why? Because his love did not stop at what was convenient. His love was committed, fully committed. When we worship the living God, what is worthless gets filtered out. And what is inconvenient, difficult and scary, no longer is a stumbling block. For we become committed. Last thing, worship opens doors. Right worship opens doors. After his near-death experience, Paul and Barnabas carry on. They were doing a tour. The two of them revisit places where they've planted churches before. And the Bible says that they were strengthening and encouraging the disciples. They prayed and fasted with and for other people, for them to be grown and then to disciple others further. But even more remarkable, they return to Lystra. They go back to the place where they've just they just nearly died. If we're really being honest, I mean, how many coffee places or restaurants have you stopped going because you felt a little bit uncomfortable? Let alone somewhere where people literally tried to kill you. It could not have been easy for them to do, to do that. But they come back full circle. So when they finished their tour, they reported to the people of Antioch all that God had done through them and how he opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. Their worship, their lifestyles had been used by God to reach more people. When we worship the right person, when our worship is committed, not just convenient, it cannot but open doors to others. I once heard a friend say, quite honestly actually, that football is her God. Her church is the stadium. Her congregation are the other supporters. Her tie for contribution are the season's tickets and the merchandise that she buys. And her joy is Nottingham Forest winning. Who can judge her, right? It's funny, but I really think she meant it. She wouldn't call herself religious because she thinks it has only to do with that God or that deity. But all of the things that I've just mentioned are worship acts that we do and she does, just directed in different places. I don't know what doors that opens for others, but we want to be people that open, that God uses to open a door of faith to those around us. So as I close, just, just want to say that we choose who we worship 
who to submit to and be governed by. We choose what we invest our time, money, and feelings in. We choose how devoted we are, how much we believe, and even for how long. And that inevitably impacts the world around us. Worship is a way of life, and right worship is a life lived well, at the center of which is God. Are you worshiping the right God? Are you committed to him? And do you see God opening doors for others? He has not left himself without testimony.